Supply chain focus has gone from efficiency to environment, and from the back room to the boardroom. Jonquil Heikenberg has become a leading voice for sustainable supply chains and studied this evolution firsthand. Jonquil Heikenberg, can you share a particularly poignant example in your studies of a company making this shift to resilient supply chains? Sure, Jeff. So if we look at the consumer goods industry as an example, um, we're looking at shampoo. Today, shampoo is being sold in plastic bottles and it's out of sight, out of mind. And that's now changing. So companies like P&G and Unilever and Nestle are working on a returns mechanism. So designing very beautiful packaging for their shampoos and stylish metal bottles, for example, that can be refilled and recycled. And I think that's the evolution, the way we're going to see forward. Great. And resilience is what we'll be exploring today's conversation. Welcome to a special edition of the Knowledge Institute podcast, where we talk with thought leaders about achieving resilience in the era of stakeholder capitalism. I'm Jeff Cavanaugh, head of the Emphasis Knowledge Institute, and today we're coming to you from London's iconic Abbey Road Studios. We're here with Jonquil Hockenberg. Jonquil leads the C-suite advisory practice for Emphasis Consulting in Europe and focuses on the digitalization of the back office, specifically supply chain, operations, and organizations. Currently, Jonquil leads a strategy for all this means to the future of business and building business resilience. She's a regular contributor to Forbes and a passionate advocate for sustainability, lifelong learning, and diversity within the workplace. And as a keen sailor, she loves to mentor ocean technology startups. Jonquil, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Jeff. Great to be here. First of all, let's explore how you got into this business of sustainability and how it's gone from maybe a, a side thing for companies to something being central. So... For me personally, as I've been a consultant for many years now, my focus has always been around delivering value. So not just numbers and and better results financially, but also value to the business. And value has started to take on a very tangible meaning. And that tangible meaning, I believe, is sustainability. And there's a seismic shift that's happening and has happened in the last two years towards the triple bottom line. So suddenly uh, the drive of consumerism, the, the drive of the oil price crash, for example, the financial crisis, and then, of course, environmental disasters that are coming thick and fast in all corners of the earth. All of these things are ripe to make a change in how we actually look at future and resilient businesses. It's interesting because I've known you for a while and talking about business and value Sustainability has crept in. This idea of resilience, though, normally you think about it like risk and risk management. How can you pair up resilience and sustainability? That's a brilliant question. For me, looking at resilience is really about how can you still evolve and learn continuously as an organization. So yes, there's an element of risk, but increasingly, if we take the example of Brexit, is something that's really going to drive scenario-based planning. It's kind of your worst or best case scenario, depending on which side of the fence you're sitting on. And as a result of that, companies need to think how they're going to respond and evolve in lots of different angles. It's not just risk, it's also opportunity. And for that reason, sustainability of organisation, but also of the work and the workplace is incredibly critical. What's the challenge facing businesses as they're trying to adopt resiliency? Sounds like it's a good idea. What's getting in the way? Technology and uh, legacy applications is often a a massive issue as well as mindset. So the 
thought in the past was we need to upgrade and spend millions on our ERP systems, as an example. And most large organisations or enterprises have gone through the exciting rollercoaster times of, of doing ERP uh, transformations. They know how much it costs and they know how much it affects the organisation. And so thinking differently how you can be evolving more rapidly and responding rapidly and based upon your learning and sensing is something that is difficult from a mindset perspective. So if you're able to reuse A, your technology landscape and just overlay something that's more agile and top, that's really key. But also that enables people to uh, reskill within the organisation so that they also can sense and adapt and learn and evolve. And this kind of concept of learning and evolving is really, really key to resilience and future planning. A lot of this has been done in the past, though, but maybe more in a linear way where it was one after the other sequential. It sounds almost like, to borrow a, a metaphor, more circular feedback loops. Absolutely. And uh, this idea of circularity, the circular economy, it's a term that is in becoming increasingly understood and now known. And as a result of the circular economy, i.e. delivering back on both financial bottom line, but sustainable bottom line is really, really important. So if you then apply that to your talent, but also to your resources in general, whether that's your energy or the resources you're using within your supply chain or your landscape, both physical and digital, that's really, really key in order to be able to adapt and keep learning and evolving. If we take a really simple example, going back to a supply chain, as I mentioned already around shampoo, let's stick with the shampoo analogy. Companies used to make a bottle of shampoo and they didn't care where it ended up. This idea that you need to take accountability for your end-to-end supply chain is really important because consumers expect it. That means packaging, but it also means the upfront supply of provenance of product and, of course, the value and, and where how people are being treated within the supply chain. Now, if you apply that to talent in the same perspective, it's really important that you're taking care of the holistic employee, um, which means that their health and well-being, that they are continuously learning. It's not just about financial recompense, which was the case in the past. You know, I, I get that for a vehicle or a, a diamond or something expensive. How do you do all this for a bottle of shampoo that might cost a couple of dollars or a pound? It's thinking entirely differently. And so it's you're right, it's volume rather than value. But if you take the power of that volume and convert that into a completely new line of business, so you've suddenly got a supply chain that's involving an entire ecosystem. Imagine you're designing beautiful bottles of shampoo in metal cases. If you're returning those and repurposing them and refilling them, suddenly you're creating a new opportunity that didn't previously exist, not only for your own organisation, but for other people within the value chain. IKEA, perfect example. They sell furniture that a lot of people have as students and then as first-time buyers of houses. And it, they wanted to take accountability for their contribution to landfill. So they decided to create a new line of business that benefits everybody in their value chain. They offered to take back furniture that was no longer wanted, they refashioned it, and then they sell it as a second-hand piece of furniture. And that concept means that not only you're addressing kind of landfill, but you're also creating new financial profits that previously didn't exist. Very interesting. Do you have another example where... Maybe a company, one of your clients, 
is considered this like a major program, like they're trying to adopt this. And what, what are some of the, the criteria they go through or decisions they make before they can embark on this? So a really good way of looking at this, um, I'll, I'll give you another example, less supply chain, more to do with talent, actually. So to do with talent and to do with employee. If we all think back to wherever we may be working, if we're working in a large organisation, you often have to call different people when things go wrong. So you've just joined your company and you need to talk to HR about payroll and your next of kin, etc. You need to talk to facilities about your badge. Then you need to get a desk. You need to get a laptop from IT. All of these things takes a lot of time. So reimagining a much more holistic design of the place that you work, in this example, one of our consumer goods clients, means that they're thinking about the employee, they're putting the human at the centre, and then joining everything up that a human or an employee needs to do in order to be more productive at work is the main focus. So what I really like about this is they're taking the angle of how do we give more time back to an employee um, so that they have freer time to think more freely. And that's a very refreshing perspective that I think we'll see increasingly in the workplace. Yeah, I think there's a program uh, that I remember it was about the million minutes given back, and somebody's actually in charge of it. It's a case study when I was at Stanford. It's actually about the million minutes given back. That was the, the goal for the program to employees. Now, when companies are doing this, though, what are the challenges they face when they're trying to get it done? So let's say they've made these decisions and they've got these metrics. What are the likely roadblocks they run into, and how do you see overcoming them? Another good question. So they're trying to join up these stories. Imagine the future is basically a, it's a story with a happy end from where we are today. And in order to get to that picture or the end of the story, that means you need to join all the chapters together. Those chapters are effectively different systems within the technology landscape. So there's the technological integration of getting all those systems to talk to one another, because Typically, today, going back to your point about linear versus circular, there's point-to-point integration from a technology perspective. What you need to do to get the power of the information, um, whether that's for your employee to say, oh, this is Jeff Kavanaugh, that pass and this laptop and this payroll is all one and the same person. In order to do that, you need to get point-to-point connections. And that means changing your entire data set and your technology landscape and overlaying something on top. That's one thing. The other thing is that you're working with people who are in different organizations or business units within your enterprise. And so joining those people together to realize that story is a big challenge. So what we find is really effective is using something like service blueprinting, which is basically the story that I mentioned with bite-sized chunks, which are your the chapters that you're delivering along the way. And they're tied to both the technology landscape, and also to persona or people. They also talk about value. So every single chapter that's delivered uh, is then delivering some kind of uh, incremental value. And that's really what I'm talking about is, of course, agile deployment. You mentioned agile. If we're playing around with synonyms here, you could think of it as uh, flexible. It also reminds me almost like it's a metaphor of a living organism where things are very fluid and it doesn't seem to be quite the sharp edges or point to point. Can you make any uh, corollaries, drawing distinctions from a company and maybe this idea of a living organism? Well, we could we could take emphasis itself. We are going through exactly the same challenges that a lot of our clients are going through. So 
And um, we have lots and lots of systems that have developed and grown over time. How do you bring and collect data and convert that to information, right? So what we're all looking for is information. Before, it was all about big data. Now we realise big data should be nothing other than information. Otherwise, we're just hoarding in a big house. So th- what we're doing internally is we're using what we call live enterprise, which is effectively how we envisage the future of work. Um, and we are overlaying what we're calling, we're using knowledge graph technology, which overlays onto our existing systems of record. And the power of this knowledge graph is that it's connecting data in a very, no longer in a point-to-point fashion, but linked interchangeably so that you can connect all the data points in one. The brilliant thing about this is that means you can make real-time decisions based upon a complete picture of, of the data that you have rather than in isolation. How we're delivering that to our employees is, again, in these bite-sized chunks based upon stories or user journeys. And we're delivering that in, in the form of apps. And those apps means that you can do basic things like timesheets and approvals and travel on the go that previously just weren't possible. Well, at least you didn't say you had to rip out all the legacy systems and take the next 10 years in doing that because uh, <laughs> we've seen how that ends. Well, great. Once again, you're listening to the Knowledge Institute the Abbey Road Sessions, where we talk with thought leaders on achieving resilience in the area of stakeholder capitalism. We're here with Jonquil, Managing Partner in Emphasis Consulting. And Jonquil, this all sounds good, especially the sustainability and, and, and the closed loop. But what is, uh, for those people that say, ah, it's too expensive, you can't have both, both profits. You know, if we do this, there's no profitability, we won't be around. So how do you reconcile that and address just those objections. I'm going to go back to the IKEA example. So IKEA had a problem in the sense that they realised they need to take accountability for their contribution to landfill, very similar to Dell Technologies or anybody who's doing with microplastics or chips. They're contributing to plastic in the ocean or metal in the ocean or whatever it might be. So rather than saying we need to embark upon a greenwashing PR exercise, uh, meaning let's do some PR and clean everything up and hug some trees. They said, well, how do we turn this potential cost into an opportunity? How do we make the supply chain rather than a cost and a back office enabler? How do we turn that into a profit machine? And so if you look at that from that perspective, they've opened up IKEA second hand. So not, not only are they selling new furniture, they're selling secondhand furniture. And as a result, they're doing good for the planet. That's extremely powerful because it means that they're addressing both the bottom line and the top line in terms of profits, but the triple bottom line in terms of environmental impact. And who knows? Maybe they keep these customers a lot longer than they normally would have. They keep them as lifetime customers. Exactly right. That is interesting. You, you, you've given several examples of European and U.S. Any examples or any perspective on what's going on in Asia? So what Asia is focusing a lot on is twofold, really. One is very much around the um, front end, if you will, of the supply chain. So, of course, if it's circular. Asia is really focusing on the start of the supply chain from the perspective of provenance and ethics. So ethics and reputation is driving a lot of what's happening. Traceability is really what we're seeing as an example of that. So how do you address the fact that in Southeast Asia, a lot of products 
disappear, quote unquote, when they move from one port to the other. So there's challenges that products are often or or parts of a a load or of a shipment are being siphoned off. So they're focusing on traceability and visibility of the product, i.e. where is it coming from? Is it arriving in the right weight, temperature, um, climate, etc.? But they're also starting to look at the ethics, so in terms of the value chain. If we look at the clothing industry, there's a massive focus in clothing around, well, where have these products been made? And if you look at, again, retailers such as H&M, you'll see this trend towards sustainable products. So they will have, you know, this is a product that's been sustainably made. Because a lot of clothes are made in Southeast Asia, this is impacting brand reputation globally. So in order to prove that no child labour has been used, no slave labour has been used, that the factories in which clothes are being made are hygienic and of, of the right standard that people are being paid accordingly. Consumer perspective and uh, perception is incredibly key in this. And brand reputation and how you tie those two things together are very, very important. So that's really what I'm seeing as a trend in Asia. And similarly, with there's a book called How Bad Is Your Banana? That that's like what is the uh, carbon footprint of how far your banana has effectively travelled, and again, you mentioned it's very easy in high value diamond industry to look at that kind of angle provenance of products, but really around ethical supply chains and the value chain of how your product arrives to you, that's really the focus that we need to look at for for volume based goods. I know that very soon you'll be over in Davos for the. World Economic Forum there, and the major theme is stakeholder capitalism. And I understand you're you're speaking over there as well. What are your perspectives as you head over there and what you hope to achieve? My objective really is to to showcase uh, and discuss with other world leaders how technology can enable a much more sustainable environment and how it can fast track towards the the SDG goals by 2030. That's really, really important. I also want to see how SDG 8 in particular can be addressed. So that's decent work and economic growth for all. So we've talked a lot about the supply chain just now. If we just flip to the supply chain of talent, there's a, there's a big drive uh, or expectation from organisations in the world to say, I need to hire the same mythical thousand digital talent that doesn't exist, right? Because there just simply isn't that many people. Forgetting about the massive resource and wealth of resource that they have in the talent pool within their existing company. So this whole idea of a repurposing and reskilling the talent you've got, but also be exploring in an organisation and environment such as Davos to have a wider perspective of what the talent pool actually is. If you're able to tap into uh, previously restricted talent pools, for example, return to work parents or those who are physically or maybe mentally challenged or those who live in difficult environments, if you enable through technology anytime, anywhere working, suddenly your talent pool becomes much wider. And that's phenomenal for two reasons, because you're giving one decent work and economic growth globally to people who wouldn't previously be able to come back to work. But it's also attracting diversity to the workforce, 
which means that it's bringing you closer to the consumers that you're trying to serve. And by diversity, I don't just mean women, which is often the thought. I mean pure diversity across every single category, because it just means that we're able to tap into things that we'd never seen before. I'm very passionate about this, so I'll add one more thing. By doing that, you're then starting to see the world in a different light and a different perspective, which brings in new, fresh ideas, which then can drive new uh, relationships within an ecosystem, but also potentially new lines of business. So we just need to start thinking massively differently, looking at talent, but starting with how technology can enable that. So the, moving beyond the circular metaphor for product and also thinking it for people. Absolutely. And more of a virtuous cycle. There's a saying that once you travel or once you have a more diverse perspective, it's hard to go back to previous thinking. Well, speaking of this major influence, especially on, um, oh, we'll, we'll just call it sustainability, noted in a personal note that you are a sailor. Can you relate what you love about that to some of these concepts as far as the environment and sustainability? Absolutely. So, so I've been sailing since I was 10 years old. Um, I'm actually, so I live in Berlin and despite having been sailing for a long time, I'm currently trying to get my sailing license in Germany because you basically need a license for everything. Um, so, you know, that's uh, exciting to be doing sailing theory in German and trying to pass the theory exam. As an aside, I think what I like about sailing is the sheer freshness of it. So when, when I'm on the water, I feel like I've been on vacation maybe for a whole week, if, even if I've been there for a day. And it just gives you clarity of thought. But you also realise it's, I sail dinghy, so I'm very close to the water. I'm not in the big yachts. And so you realise the precious nature and fragility, actually, that we have in the world. And I think why I like the sailing angle and Particularly, I really admire Ellen MacArthur and what she's doing around circularity. I think it's phenomenal. It's like, how do you then protect those oceans that we so love sailing on, in my case, but going on holiday on or using as a, a means of transportation and life around the world? And I think that's incredibly key. So this is why I work with um, Catapult Ocean. Um, they're an ocean tech fund uh, that they invest in startups that's touching all aspects of this so whether it's startups and sustainable fishing or whether it's startups looking at electrification of boats for example there's a company called Evoy that does that but they're also looking at the waste that fills the the waters there's two very interesting startups that I am very passionate about one's called the ocean bottle and what they do is they collect the plastic that's destined for the ocean. So they work with the Plastic Bank, which is a charity, and they help street workers to collect the plastic before it even hits the rivers. And they recycle that to create beautifully designed and packaged drinking bottles um, that people can then use, which is an amazing, beautiful circularity concept. There's another one called Sati, which is focusing on um, sanitation for women. So it's an Indian startup, and they're using a banana leaf fibres, which of course is entirely recyclable for sanitation for women. And I find this whole wider concept, starting with water and the power of what water can do, all of those things that you can go into, I think is just absolutely amazing. So that's where my sustainability sailing, everything comes together. Fantastic. Well, appreciate your time. And you had some place you'll need to run to. Uh, as we start to wrap this up, maybe you could share, obviously you're passionate about these topics. Who has been a major influence on you and, and how? A couple of people. So one, Ellen MacArthur, for sure, born in Derbyshire. She's a sailor, moved to the South Coast. I'm from the South Coast. 
Swinglin as well. And just her sheer determination to just anything is possible, I find absolutely incredible, especially from somebody so tiny. And there was a another wonderful man that I that I met a few years ago on a German course. He's 80 years old and a chap called Peter from Tasmania. I met him in Berlin. Uh, he was a former professor at Harvard and he was learning German with his 70 year old wife whilst living in a, basically a, a student accommodation in Kreuzberg in Germany, which is a bit gritty um, to keep the cobwebs away. And he helped review my thesis on sustainability for my MBA in renewable energy. And he threw so much passion and different angles around what this could do and how um, sustainability could be a primary driver for Industry 4.0. At the age of 80, still walking five kilometres a day, still tending his land, which is five acres every single day. I think he's phenomenal. Wow. Inspiration for us all. How can people find you and find your work online? So the easiest way is to go to LinkedIn. So I'm Jonquil Hackenberg on LinkedIn. And there there's links to uh, Forbes where I'm writing on a monthly basis and all other articles that we're publishing. And I'd love to hear from people. Great. And you can also find details uh, on Jonquil on our show notes and transcripts at infosys.com slash IKI. That's I-N-F-O-S-Y-S dot com slash I-K-I in our podcast section. Jonquil, thank you for your time and a very interesting discussion. Everyone, you've been listening to the Knowledge Institute, the Abbey Road Sessions, where we talk with thought leaders about achieving resilience in the era of stakeholder capitalism. Thanks to our producer, Yulia DeBerry, and the entire Knowledge Institute team. Until next time, keep learning and keep sharing. <laughs>